let's get started this morning. We're still in Revelation 5, and last week I was talking about the Old Testament laws of redemption, specifically the redemption as related to the land of Israel. We talked about the how the land of Israel was set up under tenant possession. The land was God's, and He gave it to Israel, the land of Canaan, as a tenant possession that they were to administer in a theocratic government under the rule of God. It's how God set up a program whereby the land would remain not only in the hands of the people of Israel, but it would remain, the allotments would remain in the hands of the tribes to which they were originally allotted. So I wanted to provide some background on God's program of land redemption for Israel because I think it sheds light on what I believe is God's program for land redemption concerning the earth. God's whole program of redemption in Messiah is not only about man or the heart of man. It's not only about the nation of Israel. It's not only about um, the church. It's about the earth itself. God created the earth to be inhabited He created man to be the tenant possessor of the earth and to have dominion over the earth under the rule of God. The original government given to man was a theocracy, something that the sinful heart of man prevents from being established uh, at this present time. And that's why probably the second best um, option where government is concerned, and our founding fathers understood this, was a representative democracy. Of course, that doesn't exist anymore either. So uh, the heart of man always tends toward evil. But before we uh, compare or discuss the parallels between God's program of redemption for Israel's land and His program of redemption for the earth, I want to look at an example of this land redemption that happened in the Old Testament. So turn to the book of Jeremiah chapter 32. And there we have an example of a kinsman redeemer exercising his right to purchase a piece of property. And then some actions taken here show that the purchasing the property wasn't his only responsibility. There was a second responsibility that in this case would have to come years later. So we're going to start in chapter 32, verse 7. During this event, Jerusalem is under siege. So Zedekiah, one of the sons of Josiah, was appointed king by Nebuchadnezzar as a vassal. Uh, Josiah was the last sovereign king of Judah. The kings that came after him, Jehoahaz, who the people made king, Jehoiakim, whom the king of, Israel, uh, king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, made king, Jehoiachin, who was made king, or was originally appointed by Josiah to be king when he was eight years old, but didn't get to power till he was 18. And then Zedekiah, the brother of, of uh, Jehoiakim, these were all vassal princes. They weren't sovereign kings that had sovereign authority over their land. They paid tribute to whether it was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, or Babylon. So Josiah was the last sovereign king of Israel, or king, king over Judah, and there won't be another sovereign king over Judah until Jesus Christ takes that crown and rules in the millennium. But this is taking place during the siege of Babylon, which I mean the siege of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar came into the land a couple of times and took captives. The first time was I think around 605 B.C. That's when Daniel went away captive. It happened again around 596 B.C. and that's when Ezekiel was taken amongst the captives. 
And then Jerusalem about 587, 588 B.C. came under siege. And the people were locked up in the city. Zedekiah the king was told by God's prophet to go out and submit himself to the king of Babylon. He refused to do it. So the city was under siege for about a year and a half. And then finally, when the supplies ran out, the wall was broken down. And in 586 B.C., so it was five, about 588 B.C. Uh, when the siege started, but in 586 B.C., uh, the, the city was broken up, the temple was destroyed, and the city was burned down, and the captives were taken to uh, Babylon. So this is during that siege. And during that siege, Jeremiah the prophet, who has prophesied to the king, look, you need to surrender yourself to Babylon. This is judgment from the Lord. Zedekiah was angry about this, and so he threw God's prophet Jeremiah in prison. So he is in the court of the prison when this event takes place. So anyway, Jeremiah 32, verse 6, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anatoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anatoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine to buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anatoth, and weighed him the money even 17 shekels of silver, and I subscribed the evidence and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money and the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Masiah, in the sight of Hanamiel, mine uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel. That's a vessel that would be buried in the earth that they may continue many days. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So this transaction whereby Jeremiah, who's in the court of the prison, on the eve of the entire nation being taken captive and the city being destroyed and the temple burned, was told to exercise his right as a kinsman redeemer and buy a field in Anatoth which was a suburb. And this purchase was a demonstration to the people of Israel that God would one day bring them back into their land. And ultimately, the temple would be built. Ultimately, Messiah would come. And ultimately, all the promises made to Israel through Abraham would be fulfilled. We do know that about 70 years, not 70 years after the destruction of the temple, but 70 years after the captivity. The first captivity was in about... I think it was B.C. 606-605. In 536 B.C., the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the decree was made to send the captives back and to load them with such as they needed so they could 
build the temple again. And so that happens under Zerubbabel about 70 years after the first, well, exactly 70 years after the first captivity in fulfillment of prophecy. So this transaction was enacted to demonstrate that God was faithful and He was not making a full end of Israel. He would bring them back into their land. But more important than that, it's interesting to see what's happening here. There is the right of the kinsman redeemer that is exercised. It says very clear here that that um, Jeremiah had the right of redemption to buy it. So this field needed to be sold. It was Jeremiah's right to purchase it. It was right, his right to purchase it not for his uncle's son, but for himself. And that's what he did. And when this was done, it talks about, or while this was done, it talks about two deeds of purchase that were legal evidence of this transaction. One of them was sealed, and one of them was left open. Verse, 30, verse 11 says, according to the law and custom. So this was a customary thing in Israel. It's something that happened all the time. Land transactions. After the pattern and after the, after the charges that were set forth in the book of Leviticus that we, we talked about last week. There was an open document that was for public record. But... An open document could easily be tampered with or lost, especially if the kinsman wasn't able to take immediate possession of the land. Now, Jeremiah was in prison. Shortly thereafter, the city would be broken into, the temple would be destroyed, and the people would be scattered. And it would be years before Jeremiah would actually be able to take possession of this property. The land at that time wasn't even under Israel's sovereign control. It was under the control of the king of Babylon. Therefore, an open document wasn't sufficient. That was good for a public record, but a sealed document was needed. Now, if we traverse back to Revelation 5, the scroll in the hand of God is sealed with seven seals written both within and without. There's a sealed deed here in this transaction. In verse 10 it says, I subscribed the evidence, that is the evidence of the purchase, and sealed it and took witnesses. So the ins this seal was written on the inside and the outside. The inside was the evidence, it was sealed, and then it says he took witnesses. So the witnesses wrote on the outside to prove that they were there. And then he weighed the money in the balances and purchase the land. This sealed deed would be irrefutable evidence of Jeremiah's tenant possession. So there was an open document for public record, but this could be tampered with, this could be lost. Wills and stuff like that are tampered with all the time, open wills that aren't properly sealed in people's lives. Children do that with their parents' wills all the time. But this sealed deed was irrefutable evidence that guaranteed the terms of this deal could not be changed and that Jeremiah was the rightful tenant possessor of this property. In Jeremiah's day, the possibility of a challenge would be strong. It'd be many years before he could take possession of his purchase. Therefore, both of these deeds, the public deed and the sealed deed, were placed in a secure place for a long time. In fact, they were buried. It said that they were stuck in an earthen vessel which was to be buried so that when the time came many years later, they could be taken out, the seals could be broken, the transaction can be read, and evidence of um, 
Jeremiah's ownership could be declared. Now, obviously, when the, when the captives returned to the land, we can read the book of Ezra, we can read the, books of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah and the troubles they had to deal with with the foreign squatters when they tried to rebuild the wall. There were people living there when they returned that didn't have a rightful claim to the land. And so, taking possession of this property at a later time would have involved having to deal with foreign squatters. So the kinsman redeemer didn't only have the responsibility of paying a redemption price for a piece of land, as Jeremiah did here, he had the responsibility of actually taking possession of the property and administering possession of the property. If the possession was not immediately taken, as is in this case, usurpers had to be evicted when the time came for it to be taken. And sometimes evicting usurpers or foreign squatters required the use of force. In fact, if you read the book of Nehemiah and the, and the troubles they had with the squatters, the people that worked on the wall, there were those that stood by with swords in their hand guarding the work in case they had to use force, force to resist these foreign squatters. And so I just want you to keep all of this imagery in mind. This is an example of the land redemption in Israel and how there were evidences in a sealed scroll and it was put away in a secure place for a long time so that when the time came to actually possess the land, there was irrefutable evidence of who the owner was. And if force was necessary to evict, well, force was necessary to evict. The kinsman redeemer had two responsibilities when it came to the land. Pay the price of redemption, which happened right here in, Jer in Jeremiah 32. The evidence was that the money was weighed. What was it? 17, uh, 17 shekels of silver. But his second responsibility was to take possession. And obviously that did not happen here. I don't know if, what the details were of that much later when Jeremiah was back in the land. I know they hauled him off to Israel, I mean to Egypt for a time when the people wanted to go back there and God told them not to. And they, they uh, captured him and took him over there. But price and power were necessary. And I want you to just keep this in mind because I believe these things shed light on what happens in Revelation 5 with Jesus Christ and the scroll. What begins to happen in chapter 6 verse 1 where it says He opens the seals. And then what happens and why Satan and his forces are gathered at a specific location to prevent Jesus from coming back and doing what is done when evidence is opened and declared. So, so keep this in mind. Now, we're going to get back into this, this new sheet here. Uh, we're not going to get back into it. We're going to start this seven-sealed scroll of Revelation 5. What I want to talk about today uh, specifically are some parallels between God's program of land redemption for Israel and a program of redemption for the earth itself, which I believe is clearly indicated in Scripture, the entire testimony of Scripture. Yes. Does anybody have an extra for... Okay, I can give mine up. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of like to use it to make sure I stay on track here. There are parallels between what we've learned concerning the redemption of the land in Israel that was given to Israel by God. Wasn't, it's not there for Palestinians to take or Muslims to take or the United States to administer or Britain to administer. It's there for Israel. The land is mine and God gave it, said God, and God gave it to Israel. 
Just consider a couple of parallels. Number one, just as the land of Israel belonged to God, that's very clear in Leviticus 25-23, the land is mine. So the earth and everything in it belongs to God. Period. doesn't even need a commentary. Revelation 4.11, we've already talked about. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Psalm 24.1 is a pretty bold declaration of something that many people in this country have forgotten. Many people in this country have turned away from. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It's God's. Our founding fathers understood that. The rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness were not tied to the right, were not tied to the pleasures of men. Our founding fathers believed these were tied to the ownership of God over the world. God gave man dominion over the world. And what gave therefore governments the right to assert the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? So those principles of representative democratic government that we see in the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution weren't tied to an atheistic understanding that man was in control of everything. They were specifically tied to rights endowed by a creator. And a creator, by definition, owns his creation. But the land of Israel belonged to God. The earth belongs to God. A clear parallel. Number two. As God gave Israel the land to possess as an inheritance forever... So the earth was given to mankind to possess as an inheritance forever. The earth was not given to the angels. Okay, It was not given to Satan. It was given to mankind. Uh, let's see here. Matthew, would you look up Genesis 1? Or, or somebody, uh, Matthew, you look up Genesis 13, 15. Daniel, Genesis 1, 28. Bob, Psalm 115.16. Nate, Luke 3.38. Genesis 13.15. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy that was a promise made to Abraham. God told Abraham, all the land which you see, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, I am giving it to you and your seed forever. God gave that land to Israel forever. Period. What about the earth? Genesis 1.28 And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That was the tenant possession of the earth given to Adam and Eve. That's the promise. That was this earth was given to man, and man was to exercise dominion over it, over all the animal life, over all the plant life. Man was to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. That's a whole nother topic. We won't get into that today. But man was given tenant possession of the earth. Psalm 115, 16. The heaven 
even the, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath He given to the children of men. It's pretty clear. God owns the heavens. He obviously created the earth and He gave the earth to men. The earth was given to men and they were to be its tenant possessors. Just like Israel was to be the tenant possessor of the land of Canaan. Somebody read Luke 338. This is in that genealogy in Luke 3 that traces the line of Messiah back through Mary to one of the sons of David uh, outside the kingly line. So it connects, it connects uh, uh, Jesus Christ to David biologically. Legally, he was connected through the line of Joseph, but biologically he was connected to David through, through uh, uh, another one of his sons, Nathan, I believe. Is that right? And it came down through Mary. But this genealogy actually goes back to Adam. What's Luke 3.38? Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Enos was the son of another man, another man. Seth was the son of Adam, but Adam was the son of what? Son of God. Adam was created by God. God was his father. In the same sense that God was the father of the man Jesus. Now obviously the man Jesus was also deity, God in flesh, which Adam was not. But Adam was the heir, the son of God, and therefore the heir. So he inherited the earth that was given to him by God, the Creator. Genesis 1.28, which was read a minute ago, is the original title deed to earth's possession. God is the landlord. Man is the tenant possessor. When God established a government in Israel, which is written in the Torah, it was intended to be a theocracy. It was intended to be a microcosm of what was supposed to be on this earth. To thereby point men back to God. God rose up a nation of people many, many years after the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. And His relationship with these descendants of Abraham would be a testimony to the earth of who God is and what is supposed to be. What was supposed to be before Adam sinned was a replenishing of this earth under the dominion of man, exercise under the rule of God, a theocracy. The laws that God gave Israel were to be a theocracy to provide a microcosmic picture to the rest of the world of who God is and what is, what is intended to be and how God would restore what originally was through a promised Messiah. So it's all connected together. God gave the land of Canaan to Israel to possess as an inheritance forever. He gave the earth to mankind to possess as an inheritance forever. You start to see the parallels here. Number three, just as Israel was forbidden to lose forever their tenant possession, it was also wrong for man to forfeit forever his administration of his inheritance. You see, Israel could lose possession of the land for a time because of mismanagement, or sometimes the whole nation could be lost because of foreign usurpers. If you look in the book of Lamentations, which was written after Israel was led, or Judah was led away captive, after the temple was destroyed, after this took place with Jeremiah and the purchase of the field, Lamentations 5.2, the prophet says, Our, that is Israel, our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. 
So the inheritance had been lost for a temporary period of time. Psalm 79.1 O God, the heathen are come into Thine inheritance, that is Israel. Thy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. So just as Israel could lose possession, an Israelite could lose possession of his own land due to his mismanagement of funds, or the entire nation could lose possession of their land due to foreign usurpers, there is a genuine sense, I believe, in which man, Adam, forfeited his tenant administration of the earth to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3 is not just man giving in to temptation and being separated from God. It's bigger than that. It's man losing or giving up or despising his tenant possession just like Esau despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a bowl of pottage. He was hungry and, and just scoffed it off like it was no big deal and despised his birthright. Adam did the same thing in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, what you had is a theocracy established by God with man as tenant possessor replaced with what I would call a Satanocracy. In other words, man despised his tenant possession, gave in to the, the temptation of Satan which tempted man with the idea that he could rise above the place of tenant possessor and possess the office of landlord. God knows that in the day you eat this fruit, you're not going to die, but you're going to be like Him. You can be the landlord of this place. You don't have to be just the tenant possessor. And of course, the woman gave in. She gave it to her husband standing by. He did eat. And the crown of man's tenant possession fell from the head of Adam. And Adam submitted not to God, but to Satan. Notice some things that are said about Satan. In a genuine sense, you get the idea that tenant possession of the earth in Genesis 3, under God's sovereign rule, of course, passed from Adam to Satan. There's a genuine sense of that in the Scriptures. Um, let's see, anybody? Anthony, can you read uh, Luke 4, 5, and 6? And then, um, Matthew, I'll go back to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In the Garden of Eden, Satan usurped and has exercised administrative control of the world system ever since. I believe this. Now, notice what is said by Satan in Luke 4 when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will give it. So, the devil took Jesus upon a high mountain and in a moment of time showed Him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said, if you'll bow down and worship Me, I will give you these kingdoms because these kingdoms or that is delivered unto Me and to whomsoever I will give it. So Satan is claiming that the kingdoms of the earth have been delivered unto him. Now, if that were not true in some sense, then how could that have been a legitimate temptation for Christ? If Satan really didn't have the authority to do that, 
then would that have even been a real temptation? The Bible says that Christ was genuinely tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. To demonstrate an active obedience to God and thereby make Him the perfect sacrifice. If that wasn't a real temptation in Christ's humanity, then, it, then, it, then Christ, it can't be said that Christ was genuinely tempted in the wilderness. And He was to demonstrate that He was the perfect sacrifice. And so Satan says, this has been delivered unto me. And there must be truth. He must have possessed some authority under the sovereign hand of God to make that offer. Was it a genuine offer? Of course it was a genuine offer. If it wasn't, it wasn't a temptation. Well, who delivered the kingdoms of the world to Satan? Adam did. For that is delivered unto me by Adam. There are several places in the New Testament, in the book of John, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11, where Satan is referred to as the prince of this world. I mean, that's just not a flippant title that Christ threw around. It had meaning. Satan presently is the prince of this world. He exercises tenant possession of this world. He is a foreign squatter. Adam lost his tenant possession and it fell in the hands of Satan. And of course, all of this is under the divine hand of God. God sits above all of it. It's not good versus evil. God is in control and He's going to make it all right. Am I, do I look funny up here? Okay, I'm sorry. I just am like, what? Did my zipper unzipped or what? I, I, I didn't know. Okay. 2 Corinthians 4 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Not only is Satan the prince of this world, he's the God of this world, who has the power to deceive and blind the eyes of them when it com- of, 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 the, of the inhabitants of this world when it comes to the glorious truth of the gospel. So Satan had the kingdoms of this world delivered unto him, I believe, by Adam. Jesus calls him the prince of this world, and Paul calls him the god of this world. So there is a genuine sense in which Satan now exercises tenant possession of this world as a result of Adam and Eve forfeiting that possession in the Garden of Eden. When man forfeited this tenant possession, it brought what to the earth? Sin, and sin brought what to the earth itself? The earth, the land. Curse. It brought a curse. The curse of sin. Genesis 3, 17-19 gives us the fact of this curse. We see it today. And unto Adam he or God said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. I'm reminded of the the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes that said time and time again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. <clears throat> Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. 
For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt also return. The earth was cursed, and that curse brought death. So that is the fact of the curse. Uh, Bob, would you look up Isaiah 24, 5, and 6? Why was the earth cursed? It was just man that sinned. Why was the earth cursed beyond just Adam and Eve and the death of the human race? I think the answer is in these verses. Isaiah 24, 5, and 6. Changed the ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men live. The earth is defiled under a curse. Why? The reason. Because they, that is man, men, mankind, have transgressed the laws. They changed the ordinance. Well, what in the world does that mean? They broke the everlasting covenant. The ordinance. The ordinance. Adam's tenant possession. That was the ordinance, Genesis 1.28. That man would exercise dominion over the earth. And man changed that, organ, or, that ordinance and gave that administrative tenant possession to Satan. That's the reason for the curse. Because man changed the ordinance and broke the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant was replenish the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and exercise dominion. And man was duped into giving that to Satan. That is the reason for the curse. What are the results of the curse? We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. Or a couple of weeks ago. Romans chapter 8. 19 through 23, this is a familiar passage. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. The creature didn't decide to be subject to vanity. It happened as a result of someone else's actions, Adam and Eve. Not willingly, but by reason of Him who hath subject, subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The fact of the curse, Genesis 3, right there in the Garden of Eden. The reason for the curse, man changed the ordinance. The results of the curse, even creation itself groans and is under the bondage of that curse. So therefore, it, the earth could be described, in light of all this, the earth can be described as a forfeited inheritance. Adam forfeited his tenant possession and it went to Satan. Therefore, Satan is the god of this world, the prince of this world, and therefore Satan could legitimately offer Christ tenant possession of the earth because it had been given unto him or delivered unto him by Adam. Not given, but delivered through deceit. Psalm 2 8, or Psalm 2 is one of the great messianic psalms that talks about the, the Messiah as God's anointed to reign over the earth. And I think it's interesting that in Psalm 2 8, God says to Jesus the Messiah, 
Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That's not a great missionary passage. I've heard that quoted by missionaries and missions organizations. And Verse 9, you know, you've got to keep reading because verse 9 says, what is the one given this inheritance going to do? He's going to break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But God is saying to Messiah, I will, you ask me for the heathen and I will give them to you as an inheritance. Okay? Just as Adam was a son of God and was given an inheritance, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is given an inheritance. And that inheritance is the one that Adam, I believe, forfeited in the Garden of Eden. The earth is a forfeited inheritance. We have to remember that when we look and study what happens in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 onward. In Israel, the loss of tenant possession was only temporary. God established a program whereby a kinsman redeemer could redeem the land and administer it into the year of Jubilee when it would go back to its original owner. God made a way for the land not only to stay the possession of Israel, but the specific allotments of the land to stay the possession of those tribes. So loss of tenant possession for Israel was only temporary. The proof is that they came back from the Babylonian captivity. The proof is that God caused Israel to bring forth in a single day and to become a nation again in 1948. It was only temporary. So it is with the earth. The loss of tenant possession by man is only temporary. It's not forever because the landlord sits above and he watches and he waits. A fourth parallel. God intended each Israelite inheritance to remain forever the possession of the tribe to which it was originally bestowed. So the earth was intended to remain forever the tenant possession of mankind to whom it was originally given. It was wrong for an Israelite to lose possession of his land to that of another tribe. That's why God established that program whereby if there were only daughters to inherit, they were to inherit with their own tribe to keep it in the possession of the tribe. It was wrong for man to lose tenant possession to a being who was outside mankind. It was wrong. It was wrong for the tenant possession of the earth to pass into the hands of someone that was not man. Satan is not man. Satan was an anointed cherub in heaven that fell from heaven. Jesus in His eternality saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning in the beginning, whenever that was. But Satan's not a man, he's a cherub. He's a spiritual angelic being and it's wrong for him to possess or administer tenant possession of this earth because he's not man. And the ordinance was given to man. Just like it was wrong for someone outside the tribe to administer possession of an allotment that was given to the tribe that lost possession. Number five, God established a program of land redemption for Israel to prevent permanent loss of tenant possession. So it is, I believe, with the earth. So it is with the earth. In Israel, there was a kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer and his responsibility prevented the loss of tenant possession forever. I believe that the earth has a kinsman redeemer. 
This kinsman redeemer is not an angel. It's not another being. It is a man. It's important, just as Israel had the kinsman redeemer was of the same tribe, of the same family, so the kinsman redeemer from, for the earth is of the same created order. Man, not an angel. Jesus Christ is not an angel like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. He's God in human flesh. He took on the form of a man. Scriptures indicate that Christ's incarnation was not just to redeem the souls of men, but it was tied to the creation itself. His incarnation was as a qualified kinsman redeemer to redeem a forfeited inheritance. In Genesis chapter 3, that great proto-evangelium, it's the first mention of the gospel, in the gospel message in all of Scripture, where God tells the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his seed. Okay? The, Satan would have a seed. We're going to talk about that later. Who's the seed of Satan that will be crushed? Antichrist. By the seed of the woman. Okay? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and his seed. That is the kinsman redeemer prophesied way back in the very beginning. You have Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Christ was made of a woman to, work, to do or exercise the work of redemption. Let's look at Hebrews 9 for a minute. Hebrews 9, 12 through 15. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. I believe Christ, after He rose from the dead, actually, in a moment of time, went into the Holy of Holies in heaven and offered up His blood. When you read the Gospel accounts of the resurrection, there's one account where Mary Magdalene recognizes Him as he's the gar- He appears as a gardener and she recognizes Him as Jesus and she goes to, to hug Him or to grasp Him and He said, don't touch Me, I've not yet ascended to My Father. But go and tell your brethren that I've risen from the dead. And then in another Gospel account, the women see Him some of the women see him, and it said they grasped and hugged on him and embraced him. Okay? So something happened between Jesus telling Mary Magdalene, Don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my Father, and the incident where the women clung to him there when they recognized it was Jesus risen from the dead. I believe what happened is verse 12 here in chapter 9. Christ actually, having risen from the dead, went into the heavenly temple in a moment of time and offered up his blood on the altar. We see in Revelation that the ark of God's testimony is in heaven. You know, a lot of people want to know where is the ark of the covenant. I think it's in heaven. Um, maybe the one uh, created here on earth in the in the Torah was a shadow of a heavenly one, or maybe the one that was actually made in the book of Exodus, God took it to heaven. I don't know the answer to that. But Jesus, in verse twelve, that's what he did in a moment of time between those two gospel accounts of his resurrection. He actually did that. And that is what, and then God accepted that sacrifice. 
And when God accepted that sacrifice, Christ was able to lead captivity captive. And some of those people that got up out of the graves after Christ's resurrection were ushered right into the presence of God in their resurrection bodies. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause He, that is Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal... Is it life? Obviously life is part of that, but inheritance. Notice those words, redemption, testament, inheritance. Kind of brings to mind the images of everything we've already talked about this morning. Christ came to do the work of redemption. And that work of redemption involves restoring an inheritance. Hebrews 2. Hebrews has a lot to say about the, the redemptive work of Christ. I find this interesting. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself took part of the same, that through death He might destroy Him that had the power of death. That is, the devil. So this isn't talking about through death Christ could destroy sins, but that through His death Christ could destroy the power of death, or Him him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham." Christ became a man to destroy the works of the devil. Well, what are the works of the devil? Administering tenant possession of the earth and dragging everybody on the earth to hell as much as he can. To continue or to, 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 to ensure that man continues to rebel against God. Christ died to destroy the works of the devil. And he did this by taking on the form not of an angel, but of a man. Why? Because man's the rightful tenant possessor of the earth, not an angel. I find, uh, let's see, Nate, 1 John 3, 8. I know we're doing a lot of uh, cross-referencing today, but I think these things are important. Jim, would you look up Acts 3, 19 through 21? And while you guys are doing that, I want to real quickly look at a verse in Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, 28. The disciples are asking Jesus, you know, we've forsaken all and followed you. What, what will be our reward? What will we have for this? We've literally forsaken all. And Jesus said unto them, verse 28, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Christ makes reference to something called the regeneration. This word here connotes a return to an original state. It's really the word re plus genesis. Regenesis. 
In other words, back to Genesis. Christ says, in the time of back to Genesis, you will rule and reign with me. This is a reference to a return of the earth, I believe, to its original state when it was born before the fall of man. So, not only is Christ's future ruling and reigning associated with the earth in its original state, but it's said to happen when the Son of Man sits in the throne of His glory. When will the earth return to its original state? Regenesis? Regenerated? As it existed before the fall? When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. So His ruling is connected with the earth returning to the state it was in when man was the rightful tenant possessor. I find that interesting. 1 John 3.8 <clears throat> He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, here is an interesting verse. He that sinneth is of the devil. The devil sinned from the beginning. When did the devil sin? Well, he fell from heaven like lightning when he tried to be like God. From the beginning of this present creation, he sinned when he usurped tenant possession of the earth. And for this reason, the Son of God or God was manifested in human flesh to what? Destroy the works of the devil. So the works of the devil are connected with the incarnation of God in human flesh. Why was it necessary for God to become man to destroy the works of the devil? Because the works of the devil have to do with an usurped or forfeited inheritance that was originally given to man. Now I find it interesting the relationship between the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John. John's Gospel assumes Christ's humanity and then undertakes to prove His deity. The first Epistle of John assumes His deity and undertakes to prove His humanity. And so this statement here of Christ's humanity in chapter 3 verse 8 is tied to the works of the devil from the beginning. And it's tied to overthrowing the works of the devil. Why? Because it's all related to this tenant possession of the earth. At least that's what I believe. It seems to make sense to me from all of these scriptures. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Repent ye therefore to be converted that your sins may be blotted out when times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets that the world began. There are two phrases here I think are important. Times of refreshing in times of restitution of all things. Jesus is spoken of as having been received into heaven until the time of the restitution of all things. These terms, refreshing, refreshing, restitution, restitution, these terms connote a return to an earlier state. A regeneration per se. The millennial kingdom of Christ when He shall return and reign is tied in these verses to the redemption of the earth itself and the restoration, I believe, of man's tenant possession. 
Jesus spoke of the regeneration in Matthew 19. I've already, spoke, I've already talked about this. When? When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. When He returns with His holy angels. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. The second coming of Christ is a restoration of man's forfeited inheritance. A restoration of tenant possession, not to the first Adam, but to the second Adam. God in human flesh, a man. There is a kinsman redeemer. I don't for not only uh, for the nation of Israel, but for the earth itself. I think there's no denying this based on these passages. There's also a redemption price for the earth. What was the redemption price? In Israel, the payment of a redemption price was required to redeem. So Christ, as the earth's kinsman redeemer, was required to pay a price to redeem mankind's forfeited inheritance. Not only to redeem the souls of those that are called unto salvation, but to redeem the forfeited inheritance that was lost. What was this price? The Scriptures are very clear. Um, Nate, Ephesians 1.7, Matthew, Colossians 1.14, Daniel, 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, Anthony, Revelation 5.9. Colossians 1.14, you're going to have to read from a King James or this very and great and important truth will not be there. It's been... Taken out, unfortunately, by a lot of the modern versions. Ephesians 1 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Colossians 1 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Restates the exact same thing. A lot of modern versions just read, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a serious crime when you take the blood of Christ out of Scripture. Especially when the manuscript evidence is so clear. There's something devious going on with some of these modern versions. We better be careful. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much, for as, much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are redeemed not with corruptible things, not with money that perishes, not with gold or silver that becomes tarnished, but with the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 5.9 And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Wow, we're here in heaven when Christ takes this scroll, the passage we're focusing on. What is this scroll? What's going on here? And when He actually takes the scroll, the weeping that John <coughs> did when it seemed there was no one worthy to take it turns into this great adoration of praise because the Lamb is worthy. Why? Because Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, nation, and people. So these elders, these 24 elders are saying, Thou hast redeemed us, first person out of every tribe, nation, and people. Well, you can't represent every tribe, nation, and people. I mean, there can't be people from every tribe and nation. Uh, what am I, how am I trying to say this? 
it would take far more than 24 people to be from every tribe, nation, and people. So the, the first person shows that there is more than just those elders there in heaven. It's all of those that have been redeemed. And they've been redeemed by what? Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. The purchase price for the earth's tenant possession, the purchase price or the redemption price for the kinsman redeemer wasn't 17 shekels of silver like it was for Jeremiah. It was the blood of God Himself. Remember Acts, feed the flock of God, feed the flock of God whom He hath purchased with His own blood. God has blood. In Jesus Christ incarnated in human flesh. The redemption price is the blood of Christ. No question about that. So we have a kinsman redeemer when it comes to the earth. We have a redemption price when it comes to the earth and the tenant possessors of the earth or the rightful tenant possessors, mankind. Also consider that the kinsman redeemer, just like in the Old Testament law prior to the year of Jubilee, actually keeps the land. He doesn't purchase it and give it to someone else. So it is with Jesus Christ. He redeems the earth and He doesn't turn around and give it to, the, to mankind to administer. The saints, it says, reign with Him. He keeps the land and administers the land. Real quickly, Revelation 11, verse 5, it says this, I don't think that's... or I'm sorry, 11 verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded... This is the seventh trumpet judgment, which is part of the seventh seal, which includes the seven vials. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which represent all of mankind, redeemed mankind, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God. The kingdoms of this world, which are administered by Satan now, become the kingdoms of our God. That seventh trumpet, which is the seven vials, those things happen really quickly. Really quickly. And then Jesus comes back and actually does what is proclaimed there in a short space of time. Zechariah 14.9 is another interesting passage. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That prayer that God's kingdom would come, O Lord, may Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, the answer to that prayer, the final answer to that prayer is Zechariah 14.9. And this talks about the coming back of Christ, His visible return in glory, when He sets foot on the Mount of Olives, and when those gathered against Him are smitten with a plague. Have any of you ever seen that old movie, uh, Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they suppose, the Nazis supposedly find the Ark of the Covenant, and at the end they look into it. And a couple of things happen. It kind of used to scare me as a kid, but when they look into the ark, one of the guys' head just explodes in a million pieces. And another guy, that weird-looking doctor with the glasses, it just literally shows his face just consume away. And his eyes fall out of their holes. And, 
and, and, and, and, and the skull just turns to dust. Like everything just consumes his skin, his blood, his facial muscles. It just melts away. Well, that's kind of interesting because that's exactly what is described here in the book of Zechariah will happen to those who are gathered in rebellion, Satan's minions, the kings of this earth who are gathered to stop Christ from taking possession of what is rightfully His at Armageddon. So this is all happening in Zechariah 14. And what does it say in verse 9? And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall be one Lord and His name one over all the earth. The final answer to the prayer in the Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kinsman redeemer not only purchases the land, he keeps it and administers it himself. Remember in Jeremiah, buy this field for thyself. Jeremiah was buying it for himself to exercise dominion and authority. He wasn't buying it for his uncle's son. He was buying it for himself. Jesus Christ is redeeming it for himself so he might rule over the earth. Let me just really quickly, this is a bad place to stop, so just give me a a few minutes here. The first Adam forfeited the land, the last Adam redeemed it, and he will keep it and reign over the earth. We've also got a deed of purchase. A deed of purchase. See, all of these things are demonstrating that there is a program of redemption for the earth. Very much like what happened in Israel. we We have a kinsman redeemer, Jesus, who paid a redemption price, His blood. He's going to keep the purchase and reign over it. There's also a deed of purchase. What is that deed of purchase? Revelation 5.1, And I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. In light of the many parallels that exist between God's program of land redemption for Israel and His program of land redemption for the world, to me it is very obvious that the seven-sealed scroll in the right hand of God is the deed of purchase for mankind's tenant possession of the earth. Just like in Jeremiah 32, when he paid the price, a deed of purchase was drawn up. One of them was open, one of them was sealed. When Christ paid the redemption price on the cross. He shed His blood. A deed of purchase was made. Just like Jeremiah's purchase and other such deeds, according to Jewish tradition and history, were sealed. There was writing on both sides. There was the transaction inside and the subscription of witnesses on the last. What we have here in verse 1 of chapter 5 in Revelation is a deed of purchase. It's sealed. Not with one seal, but seven seals, the number of completion. It's written within and on the back. The imagery here is very much the same as the imagery in Jeremiah chapter 32. This deed of purchase in the right hand of God is legal evidence of Christ's payment of the redemption price and therefore His right to rule the earth as tenant possessor. Possessor. Christ, when He shed His blood on the cross, didn't only make provision for the salvation of man, but for the recovery of man's lost inheritance. Why is this scroll sealed? To make irrefutable. Seven, the number of completeness, the number of totality. Seven seals totally secure from tampering or change. 
absolutely irrefutable, undeniable evidence in the right hand of God. And who is worthy to take it? Who is worthy to open it? Who is worthy to read it? And who is worthy to administer it? What He has been given the right to do? None other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, the kinsman redeemer for the earth. Why was the scroll placed in a secure place? In Jeremiah's day, it was buried in the earth. I can't think of a more secure place for anything than the right hand of God. It was in the right hand of God, a secure place. And it's been there for a long period of time. It's been 2,000 years since the price of redemption was paid. Why? Because between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, between the payment of the redemption price and the actual taking of possession, very similar to Jeremiah's situation, God instituted a peculiar program and His plan and purpose for the history of man, the church age. Christ did not actually take possession of the earth immediately after paying the redemption price at the cross. Instead, He was removed to a location far from the earth for a time. Remember it says in, in that passage in Acts what talks about refreshing, the times of refreshing, that Christ who was received into the heavens for a period of time. Remember Acts chapter 1 when Jesus was risen from the dead, what did His disciples ask Him? Lord, will You at this time restore unto Israel the kingdom? And He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God hath put in His own power, but you, for now, are going to be My witnesses. And you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and proclaim it to the Gentiles. Christ has been received into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God for a time. And that scroll was put into a secure place until the time when the kinsman redeemer would make claim to what he has already purchased. Just like Jeremiah's scroll was placed in the earth. And the Bible says, it, you know, God told Jeremiah it will remain there for many days. But many years later, Israel came back into the land and had to take possession of what had been redeemed. I think it's interesting in the book of Hosea, and I'm sorry I'm running a little bit over, but this is a real bad place to stop. In Hosea, what we see in Israel today is the fulfillment of prophecy. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. For the children, this was written during the days when there was a monarchy. It was a divided monarchy. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, that means no temple, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. So there's a long period of time when Israel would abide without these things. Wasn't in the days of Jesus, there was a temple, Herod's temple, 70 AD, all of this was removed and Israel's had no means to sacrifice for their sins or to exercise the law of sacrifice since that day. Christ died, paid the redemption price, rose from the dead, proof that that redemption price was good, the currency was good. And then these things were removed from Israel because Christ went back to heaven for a time. And during this time of the church age, God would call forth a people out of all the Gentiles to inherit the spiritual blessings of Abraham. And all of, the, all of these days, Israel would abide without these things. But afterward... Israel will repent and they'll return and they will accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. 
and they'll fear the Lord. And this tenant possession of Israel will be fully restored simultaneously with the tenant possession of the earth to mankind. While Christ has been absent physically, now we know that Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of His people. There's no question. We know that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of creation and everything that happens here is under His watch care for His times and His purposes. But while Christ bodily has been absent from this earth physically, there have been foreign squatters. Satan and his human minions. The fourth beast of Daniel 7, that terrible Gentile kingdom, the Roman Empire, and the, 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 the political and, and, and genealogical descendants have been in control and exercising tenant possession of the world system. That's why the scroll is in a secure place. Because there's other, there are others, many of them, Satan himself, laying claim to this. And so when it time, comes time for Christ to take possession, there's going to be, need to be irrefutable evidence that it's His. Two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. Pay the redemption price, take possession, and, enter, and exercise administrative control. Well, interestingly, Revelation 5 relates directly to both. Not only the redemption, but the authority and power to exercise administrative control. I mean, we can look at the titles given to Christ here in this chapter. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. The Lamb that was slain. Not just the work of redemption, but the, the work of authority and exercising rule. Chapter 5, verse 5, He hath prevailed implies a previous victory by the overthrow of an opposing force. This victory at the cross gained Him the right to take tenant possession. Jesus makes an interesting statement. I'm sorry I'm running long. I'm almost done. Jesus makes an interesting statement in John 16, verse 11. Jesus is um, talking about His death and resurrection. This is uh, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And He's talking about how He's going to send this, the Comforter after He leaves. And this Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness of judgment. And then He describes this in verse 9, "...of sin because they believe not on Me, of righteousness because I go to My Father." and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged, or the connotation is now judged. Satan, the prince of this world, is spoken of as being presently judged here as Jesus goes to the cross. Well, how is that true? It's true because Christ pays the redemption price and gains the right of inheritance from Satan at the cross. It is the sealing or, or it is the payment of the redemption price and the drawing up of the deed of purchase that ensures, and this happened at the cross, this ensures what we're going to see in Revelation 6-22. through At the cross, the prince of this world was judged. The rightful heir purchased the possession. In Revelation 6, he begins to open that seal to show himself to be the true inheritor and then institutes a bombardment of divine wrath, a preemptive strike 
so that when the time comes to read that document and take possession, the usurper is overthrown fully and finally. When Christ takes that scroll, He exercises this right. And then it also talks about... I'm going to stop here actually. There's some interesting details um, here. But what we see is an unquestioned parallel here. God has a program of redemption for the earth. He had a program for Israel and they parallel each other. And when we see these things throughout Scripture, to me it's obvious what this scroll deed is. It's obvious what happens. And it ties Revelation 6 and the judgments therein, ties it not only chronologically, but um, uh, thematically to this scroll. The whole rest of Revelation is tied to this scroll. And, that, and, and for that reason, we can follow it and see what's happening and why it's happening. It also shows us that the, judgment are not, is not the, the judgments are not the work of man. They're not the work of the devil. The church has been told to be ready for trial and tribulation. Trial and tribulation of man. Trial, tribulation, and persecution of the devil. But what happens in Revelation when the Lamb opens the scrolls is the wrath of God. There's a big difference. The wrath of God has not been appointed to those who have been saved and redeemed. So we have this parallel. I think you guys are understanding what this scroll is. Christ doesn't only take it in Revelation chapter 5, but in chapter 6, verse 1, we see He starts to open the scrolls. And the judgments are tied to the deed of purchase for the earth being opened. But I did have a few things I wanted to say about chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and how this imagery of not only the redemption side of the kinsman redeemer, but of the of the taking possession and exercising administrative control side is also brought together right here in Revelation 5. So anyway, we will finish this up next week and we'll actually dive right into Revelation 6. Anybody have any questions? I'm sorry, we did get started a little late this morning, but I'm sorry I ran over. I find this stuff very interesting and I find this chapter very important, so I think we should spend a lot of time I don't want to just make declarations about what this scroll is without backing it up with Scripture and declaring unto you my reasoning for thinking so. Alright, let's uh, just pray real quickly over the food and have some fellowship. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this Word that You have given us this morning. Thank You that uh, you, ha- you are orderly in everything You say and do. And for that reason, in the church, we're supposed to do things decent and in order. Lord, You have a plan and a purpose from day one, and You're going to do it and You're going to fulfill it. What was lost and delivered unto Satan because of man's failure is going to be restored to man's kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a man, but God in human flesh, a perfect sacrifice. And we thank you for that, Lord. We look forward to that day. We thank you that we, the church, have not been appointed to wrath. We do thank you that you're going to restore the promises unto Israel and they're going to wake up and and recognize their Messiah and that there's a day coming, Lord, when we will not be floating around as ghosts on clouds and playing harps, but actually living and reigning with you in a literal physical kingdom, uh, eventually which will translate into a new heavens and a new earth. And we, we rejoice for those things, Lord. We pray that you continue to save men, you continue to wake up those, some of whom are close to us, before these days come and it's too late. Bless the food, bless our fellowship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.